This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Saturday. As we mentioned in our episode on Sarah Bradley Fulton and the Daughters of Liberty, our main source of information on her comes from local historian Helen T. Wilde. Wilde's other projects included working with the Daughters of the American Revolution to purchase and preserve Royal House, now the Museum Royal House and Slave Quarters. Our episode on Belinda Sutton, who was enslaved at Royal House, came out on December 14, 2016, and that is today's Saturday Classic. In this episode, we mention Isaac Royal Jr.'s bequest to Harvard University and the professorship at Harvard Law that was named for him. The Royal Professorship in Law was retired in 2022. Also in this episode, we talk about recording some videos for the website How Stuff Works. Our podcast is not affiliated with that website anymore, but you can still see the video on YouTube, and we'll put a link in the description of today's episode. Only look at the comments on that video if you want to see a lot of people asking, but what about the Irish slaves? Other than that, enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This October, uh, Holly, you and I had a pretty exciting time on the podcast because you came to visit me. I did. I brought camera and sound people. (laughs) You did. I make it sound like this was like just a trip for funsies. But no, it was a trip to basically go on a video recording extravaganza field trip uh, with two of our How Stuff Works video crew, Casey and Paul. And the four of us spent a lot of time over three days interviewing people and recording videos and seeing amazing historical sites. Uh, It was both fun. And exhausting. Super exhausting, but super duper fun. Yeah. Uh, I think even more exhausting for Casey and Paul. They did so much of the heavy lifting by nature of being the video and sound people. (laughs) Yes, both literally and figuratively. They did a lot of heavy lifting. Yes, yes. You and I helped carry whenever we could, but, you know, we can't be in front of the camera and also holding it. That doesn't really work uh, with our setup. So 
The first stop that we made was at the Royal House and Slave Quarters in Medford, Massachusetts. And the Royal House was home to Isaac Royal and his family during the 18th century. And the Royals were the largest slave-owning family in Massachusetts. And they had an enslaved workforce both at their Medford home and on sugar plantations in Antigua, which is a big part of how the Royals made all that money. There is already a video on our website that tells more of the story of the royals and their enslaved work, workforce and how those lives intertwine together uh, on the property. And we're going to put a link to it in the show notes and on our, our social media and all of that kind of stuff when this episode comes out. There are also some more videos already out and coming soon from that trip, which we are really excited about and we'll also be sharing uh, on our website and social media um, as those are ready. Today's episode of the podcast is also inspired by our trip to the Royal House Museum. There's a lot that we don't know about the people who were enslaved when it was still a home. And uh, there's documentation for about 60 enslaved people over two generations of royal ownership there on the Massachusetts property. But the actual number was probably quite a lot higher One enslaved woman in particular stands out, Belinda Sutton, who successfully petitioned for compensation for her years of enslaved labor on the royal property. And by the time Belinda petitioned for compensation, the royal family was already incredibly wealthy. And just for clarity, uh, I feel like we should point out that when we say the royals, again, it's R-O-Y-A-L-L. It's a proper name. Yes. Even though you mentioned that his name was Isaac Royal. We just want to make entirely clear. <laughs> they were not actual royalty. Uh, and this family was by this point incredibly wealthy. But they did not start out incredibly wealthy. Isaac Royal Sr., born 1672, came from a New England family of relatively modest means. But that changed after he purchased a sugar plantation in Antigua. This was during the era of the triangle trade, that interconnected trading system that relied on enslaved Africans, crops like sugar and cotton, and products made from those crops like rum and cloth. By trading mainly in rum, sugar, and enslaved Africans, Isaac Royal Sr. became very wealthy. It's a common misperception that in North America, only the Southern economy relied on slavery. But in reality, a lot of the wealth in New England and other other northerly areas was connected directly to the slave trade and on industries that relied on slave labor. For a time, the royal family actually lived in Antigua. But in 1737, Isaac Sr. decided to relocate back to New England. And his reasons for doing so were not specifically recorded. But we do know that the year before, a series of gruesome executions had been carried out on Antigua in response to the threat of a slave revolt. Whether this revolt really was in the works continues to be the subject of some historical debate, and it certainly would not have been the first occurrence of a slave resistance effort on the island if it was. An enslaved man known as Prince Klaas confessed to having planned a massive uprising that would not only have overthrown the island's planters, but also would have massacred its white population. 
However, there isn't much physical evidence to support the idea that such a vast uprising was really imminent. So while some historians are completely convinced that it was, others suspect that the white slave owners and the court, who were vastly outnumbered by the island's enslaved population, exaggerated what was actually a much smaller threat, possibly as a product of their own fear. The executions, however, were definitely real, with five people being broken on a wheel, six gibbeted, and 77 burned at the stake. One of the royal's enslaved overseers was among those burned at the stake, and another was uh, reprieved at the stake in exchange for information he had. So it, while it's not written down anywhere exactly what prompted them to go back uh, to to New England, it's pretty reasonable to suspect that the royals went back because they feared for their safety. To prepare for the family's arrival back in Massachusetts, Isaac Royal Sr. bought a piece of property in Medford, which is called Ten Hills Farm. And this was a 500-acre property that housed a colonial farmhouse, which was expanded into a three-story Georgian mansion, along with barns and other outbuildings. There was also a slave quarters, which still stands today and is the only freestanding slave housing still left in the North. The structure that became the slave quarters started out as an out kitchen or a separate kitchen that would allow people to cook in hot weather without heating up the house. And that was standing before the rest of the quarters were added onto it. The museum on the property today includes both the mansion and the slave quarters. And when the royals took up residence there at Ten Hills Farm, they had at least 27 enslaved Africans with them. Isaac Sr. died in 1739, and Isaac Jr., one of his two surviving children, inherited most of the estate. At this point, the royals were one of the wealthiest families in Massachusetts, and Isaac Jr. and his wife Elizabeth were very prominent in society, living a life of absolute luxury and holding lavish parties, and for Isaac's part, also holding public office. With the approach of the Revolutionary War, Isaac Jr. fled Massachusetts, leaving his mansion, most of his physical property, and more than 20 enslaved people behind. Apparently, he had some sympathies with the cause for independence, but he also had a lot of financial reasons to stay loyal to the crown. He tried to get passage back to Antigua, but he couldn't, and instead he went to Nova Scotia just before the Battle of Lexington in 1775. A year later, he joined his daughter's families in England, and he died there of smallpox in 1781. In his will, Isaac Jr. left money to Harvard, which was used to endow the university's first law professorship. The shield of Harvard Law School was, for this reason, originally modeled after the royal family coat of arms. The royal professorship still exists, but the law school agreed to retire the shield and replace it with a new one in March of 2016. And as part of the same protests that led to this decision, students actually also occupied a lounge on campus and renamed it Belinda Hall after Belinda Sutton, who we will be talking more about in a moment. Basically, now is the moment (laughs) that we will be talking more about her. The moment has arrived. Uh, Belinda was mentioned in Isaac Jr.'s will as well saying, quote, I do also give unto my said daughter, my Negro woman, Belinda, in case she does not choose her freedom. If she does choose her freedom to have it, provided that she gets security that she shall not be a charge to the town of Medford. And he also instructed his executor to pay Belinda 30 pounds for three years. 
However, by the time of his death, Isaac Jr. actually no longer had a lot of his property in Massachusetts. A lot of it had been confiscated during the war, and some of the people who had been enslaved there had been enslaved there had been freed, and others had been sold elsewhere. In later documents, Belinda, who was referenced uh, in his will, is called Belinda Sutton, a widow. But we don't actually know who her husband was or when she married him. Some of the earliest documents that reference her uh, present her last name as royal, but it was common for enslaved people to be given their owner's surnames. Belinda had at least two children. A son named Joseph and a daughter. Uh, We're guessing on the pronunciation of whether it's Prine or Priney, but it's P-R-I-N-E, who were baptized in Medford in 1768. And it appears that her son was sold away from her, possibly at the same time that she was freed. Although the Commonwealth did manumit Belinda, along with at least some of the other people who were confiscated from the royal estate, they didn't really make provisions for her sur- her survival afterward. And we will talk about how that led to her petition after a quick word from a sponsor. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Belinda was freed, she and her daughter made their way to Boston to try to start a new life among the free Black people living there. But by this point, Belinda was elderly, and her daughter was also not well. 
Because she had spent most of her life working for no pay, Belinda had essentially nothing to live on and no way to support herself and her daughter. On February 14, 1783, Belinda presented a petition to the Massachusetts General Court. It began, quote, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to the Honorable the Senate and House of Representatives in General Court Assembled. The petition of Belinda, an African, humbly shows that 70 years have rolled away since she on the banks of the Rio de Valta received her existence, the mountains covered with spicy forests, the valleys loaded with the richest fruits spontaneously produced, joined to that happy temperature of air to exclude excess would have yielded her the most complete felicity had not her mind received early impressions of the cruelty of men whose faces were like the moon and whose bows and arrows were like the thunder and the lightning of the clouds. The Rio de Volta is what's uh, called the Volta River today and what was at that point known as the Gold Coast, and it's now Ghana. That was where Belinda had lived until about the age of 12, where, as she described in the petition, she was in a sacred grove with her parents paying devotions to Oricha and, quote, an armed band of white men driving many of her countrymen in chains ran into the hallowed shade. Referring to herself in the third person, she goes on, quote, She was ravished from the bosom of her country, from the arms of her friends, while the advanced age of her parents, rendering them unfit for servitude, cruelly separated her from them forever. After she describes her passage across the Atlantic and her arrival on a new continent, she states that she worked for 50 years for Isaac Royal until after the war before concluding, quote, The face of your petitioner is now marked with the furrows of time and her frame feebly bending under the oppression of years, while she, by laws of the land, is denied the enjoyment of one morsel of that immense wealth, a part whereof has been accumulated by her own industry and the whole augmented by her servitude. Wherefore, casting herself at the feet of your honors, as to a body of men formed for the extirpation of vassalage, for the reward of virtue, and the just return of honest industry, she she prays that such allowance may be made her out of the estate of Colonel Royal, as will prevent her and her more infirm daughter from misery in the greatest extreme, and scatter comfort over the short and downward path of their lives, and she will ever pray." So, in five paragraphs, Belinda describes her childhood in Ghana, her capture, the Middle Passage, her arrival, and the fact that she spent most of her life helping to build the wealth of the royal family, when she herself was not allowed any portion of that wealth or even to own any property. And she ends by asking for reparations, a payment of damages for having been wronged, specifically to be taken out of the estate of the man she worked for without being compensated for all that time. Some of the petition's passages aren't necessarily meant to be read completely literally. For example, the word uh, oricha is Yoruba, and it's a word that means deity. But Yoruba was spoken a little farther west than the Gold Coast where Belinda would have been from. So it's not entirely clear where Belinda or perhaps the person who helped her write this petition might have learned it or how they might have used it. The description of Belinda's capture also specifies that her captors were white. 
However, it's far more likely that she was initially captured by other Africans further inland before being taken to the coast and sold to white slave traders. You can learn more about this aspect of the slave trade in our past podcasts on Dahomey and the royal palaces of Abomey. Describing her abductors as white may have been an intentional effort to appeal to the moral sensibilities of the white judges or to resist attempts to shift the blame for slavery onto Africans who captured the slaves rather than on the Europeans who created the demand for them. You will still see people trying to make this argument on the Internet today. Most likely, Belinda herself was illiterate. Her signature on this and other petitions is an X. And her most likely assistant in creating this petition was a man named Prince Hall. He had been enslaved from birth around 1735, and then he had been freed in 1770. After becoming freed, he became an activist and an abolitionist in Boston, where he was also the founder of an African Masonic Lodge. He helped author at least two petitions for a general manumission in in Massachusetts. And we will talk a little bit more about these other petitions that were also presented during Belinda's life and around the same time a little bit later in the show. Belinda's petition also quickly became part of a growing body of anti-slavery literature. Quaker abolitionists distributed copies, and the New Jersey Gazette reprinted it in its entirety on June 18th of 1783. Soon, this petition was being reprinted in other newspapers and anti-slavery journals on both sides of the Atlantic. In at least one British case, there were quite a number of creative liberties basically rewriting this legal petition into a slave narrative in the first person. In terms of the ruling, Belinda's petition was successful. In 1783, the court awarded her and her daughter an annual pension of 15 pounds 12 shillings to be paid out of the profits of the royal estate. However, the estate only paid this pension for a year and then ignored Belinda's repeated requests for it. In 1787, Belinda went back to court to try to force the royal estate to pay the pension as ordered, and the court once again found in her favor. The estate did make its payments for three years before stopping again, leading Belinda back to court in 1790. And after payments stopped once again, she had to submit yet another petition in 1793, and once again the ruling was in her favor. From there, there's really no record of her until Willis Hall, who had been the executor of Isaac Royal Jr.'s estate, requested that he be granted the rest of the money in the state treasury, saying, quote, two family servants who were left behind, end quote, had then died. Presumably, one of the people he is talking about was Belinda, and that was in 1799. And Belinda's petition was by far not the first nor the only petition connected to slavery to be presented in Massachusetts courts, as we mentioned just a moment ago. And we're going to talk more about this topic after we first pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Belinda's petition was part of ongoing legal efforts of enslaved and formerly enslaved people to advocate for themselves through Massachusetts courts. Uh, A lot of these were petitions for freedom. There were enough of those that uh, there are definitely sources that misreport Belinda's uh, petition as being one for her freedom, which it was not. The Anti-Slavery Petitions Massachusetts Dataverse at Harvard has a huge collection of anti-slavery and anti-segregation documents, including Belinda's petitions, online. As early as 1770, individual enslaved people in Massachusetts were suing their owners in court for their own freedom or for compensation for their labor or for both. And some of these suits were, in fact, successful. Petitions for general freedom for all people enslaved in Massachusetts started before the Revolutionary War as well. Enslaved people submitted six different petitions for general emancipation between 1773 and 1777 alone. Prince Hall, who probably helped Belinda craft her petition, had submitted two of these in the late 1770s, asking for a general emancipation, protection against being kidnapped back into slavery, financial help for former slaves who wanted to settle in Africa, and public education access for Black students. 
Many of these early petitions were connected directly to the language the Patriot cause was using to frame the Revolutionary War and the wish for the colonies to be freed from British rule. They called on the courts to recognize that the inalienable right to freedom was not limited only to white people. These 1770s petitions prompted one bill to abolish slavery in Massachusetts, although it was ultimately unsuccessful. Some of the petitions also drew from the Bible, citing Old Testament passages requiring the freedom, the freeing of slaves every seven years, with those freed slaves being compensated. In one case, petitioners submitted a pamphlet by James Swan, who was a member of the Sons of Liberty and a participant in the Boston Tea Party, which attacked slavery from numerous angles, including the biblical one. It's possible that Belinda's petition was patterned after or inspired by the petition of Anthony Vassal of Cambridge, Massachusetts. He had submitted a petition in 1781 requesting the title to land owned by his former owner, John Vassal, as compensation for his years of unpaid labor. Before being enslaved under John Vassal, Anthony and his wife had lived in Medford, where they had been owned by Isaac Royal Jr.'s sister, Penelope Vassal. John Vassal was a loyalist who had been exiled and whose estate had been confiscated, and Anthony successfully argued that he was owed reparations for having worked on that land where his wife and their children had also been enslaved. Although he wasn't awarded the title to the land that he asked for, he was granted an annual pension of 12 pounds out of the proceeds of the estate. It was, in fact, court rulings that would eventually end slavery in Massachusetts. In 1781, Elizabeth Freeman, then known as Mum Bet, successfully sued her owner for freedom under the grounds that the newly adopted Massachusetts Constitution forbade it in Article 1, quote, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. That same year, an enslaved man known as Quack Walker escaped from Nathaniel Jennison, and when Jennison found Walker, he beat him, leading Walker to sue him for assault and battery. This led to a series of countersuits ending with Commonwealth versus Jennison in 1783. During the instructions to the jury, Chief Justice Cushing stated, quote, And upon this ground, our constitution of government, by which the people of, the com- of this commonwealth have solemnly bound themselves, sets out with declaring that all men are born free and equal, and that every subject is entitled to liberty and to have it guarded by the laws, as well as life and property, and in short, is totally repugnant to the idea of being born slaves. This being the case, I think the idea of slavery is inconsistent with our own conduct and constitution. There can be no such thing as perpetual servitude of a rational creature unless his liberty is forfeited by some criminal conduct or given up by personal consent or contract. Commonwealth versus Jenison effectively ended slavery in Massachusetts, although there continued to be some people enslaved for some time afterward, particularly under the guise of indentured servitude. So that is Belinda's petition. There are a lot of uh, people and articles that describe Belinda's first petition as the first petition for uh, for reparations for slavery to exist in the United States. I think that's a little... Uh, oversimplified not to 
fault anybody <laughs> in that a lot of these petitions um, were really difficult to access until that uh, big Harvard database that we talked about a little bit earlier was online and it, it became a lot easier to search through them. Uh, it, it made those documents a lot more accessible to people. Um, but Belinda's petition definitely is part of a much greater legal effort that was ongoing in Massachusetts for years um, to try to, at least on an individual basis, compensate some uh, some previously enslaved people for basically the damage that was done to them by uh, having them be part of building their owner's wealth while forbidden to to you know accumulate any wealth or possessions of their own. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.